Join us for this very special episode of the Freedom Matters podcast to hear from Russ Vogt, the 42nd director of the Office of Management and Budget, a member of Donald Trump's cabinet and the president and founder of the Center for Renewing America. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humboldt, this is the Freedom Matters podcast. Well, I've been doing pretty good up until now, but I don't know this one. What? I, I don't, not yet, anyway. Who is this? I don't know. I stumped you with one I thought I wouldn't stump you on. You stumped me with one. Oh, my gosh. Russ knows this song. This is Journey. You don't recognize the... I have never heard this one. I mean, now that you say... No, I recognize the voice now, yes. Steve Perry. But I've never heard this song. Oh, my gosh. Stone in Love. That's a great workout song. Man, missed one. My son and I Dang used it. to work out to that. <clears throat> Unbelievable. Well, Today we are pleased to welcome my friend, someone whom I know is stone in love with America, as founded, <laughs> Mr. Russ Vote. Russ is the president and founder of the Center for Renewing America, and uh, prior to this venture, Russ was the 42nd director of the Office of Management and Budget, a member of the president's, that's President Trump, by the way, cabinet, responsible for overseeing the implementation of president's policy, management, and deregulatory agendas across the executive branch. So effective was Rush... Rush, listen to that. <clears throat> Sorry, I mean, Rush, Rush was pretty effective, too. <laughs> so effective was Rush that The Economist once referred to him as the president's toolkit. Wow. Prior to serving nice in the Trump administration, Rush spent nearly 20 years working in Congress, Capitol Hill, and various matters including a seven-year stint as vice president of Heritage Action for America, which is actually where I met Russ back in 2010. He's a graduate of Wheaton College in 1998. He, gra he also went to George Washington University Law School. So, yes, Russ is a lawyer, although Gosh. Russ is a real lawyer. I'm just a, <laughs> still just an entertainment lawyer. So, Russ, I've been so looking forward to this, and our audience, I think, will be delighted with the depth that we can uh, achieve in all of these issues surrounding America. But welcome to the program. We've got lots of questions for you and just wanted to um, say hello and thanks. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, you and I have been friends for a long time and just recently got to know Gary. And so I'm excited for this conversation for sure. And in the future, Kevin, I, I, I do prefer more credentialed guests on our show. You know, whenever we... <laughs> <clears throat> and I cut his bio in half <laughs> just to make it fit. No, it's great. Welcome, welcome, Russ. Glad to have you. So, Russ, one of our mutual friends who I won't name, but a few months ago told me that if I'm going to have you on the program or mention anything about CRA, that I have to disclose to the audience that I am a board member so that they won't think that I am unbiased or, or biased. So I, let me make it clear. I'll just say it once and be done. I'm a board member of CRA. I think I'm the only non-Washington, D.C. board member, right? That's right. But uh, you're exactly the kind of person that we wanted uh, to be on our board because you have been intimately involved in the grassroots and but also from the standpoint of knowing the issues very well. So uh, we're thrilled that you're a part of our organization. Well, honored. 
Thanks, Russ. Well, so, so D.C. folks and then Tennessee, and a little bit of Tennessee representation. A, a, good, a good connection. Good. <clears throat> I, I would say, too, that all of the other board members who, although they are in D.C., um, what do we say, you know, He's in the world, but not of the world. Yeah, Russ and the board of CRA are in DC, in, but they are not in of the swamp, DC. but not of the swamp. Not of that's the swamp. Good. That's so, how we. Uh, that's how we see ourselves for sure. So, Russ, there's so many things we could talk about, but I, I wanted to get us started with um, some of the things that you've led the way on, and one of the most exciting, uh, and it would have been really exciting had Carrie Lake uh, been elected as governor of Arizona. But can you talk a little bit about the behind-the-scenes um, process, how you came up with the constitutional authority for governors in border states to stop invasions, and uh, where you see that going today in light of the fact that we don't have someone like Carrie Lake uh, in Arizona. Yeah, so what we started that uh, by trying to think through, you know, if, if we don't have an opportunity to have the White House for at least, at the time, three years, uh, now two years. Uh, court cases are fundamentally uh, important, but not uh, all important in the sense that we have a Biden administration will just ignore the law. So we're trying to think through what could we do with Republican border governors that they would have to use new powers. Like if, if, if Donald Trump was president of Texas, what would he do? What paradigms would he smash through if Ron DeSantis was in charge of Texas? What would he do? And and we really approached it from that angle, uh, maximalist uh, art of the possible using the laws that are on the books. And we looked at Article one, Section 10, Clause three. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli led this. This was really his his uh, analysis, of the Constitution, former attorney general of, of Virginia, former deputy secretary of Homeland Security. So a very kind of rare combination of operational know-how, but also constitutional understanding and also understanding of what a state governor can do as the person that's advising a governor legally on what they could do. And we we saw and did an analysis of Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which allows a governor to exercise uh, commander-in-chief authorities to remove individuals across the border if facing an invasion. And, and then we did one level of analysis more and realized that the, they weren't talking about nation states uh, where you'd have the, the government of Mexico invading the southern border. But this was meant to, to capture militias, smugglers, certainly cartels in, in the modern day, uh, certainly kind of large masses of individuals that pose a threat and the federal government is not responding to defend the border as it should. And so this is something we've called on, on all governors with kind of some expectation that we could get Texas and Arizona to listen to our arguments. Carrie Lake ran on this. She was ready on day one to do it. We had done a lot of work operationally to help her be ready. And now it's really up on Texas. And, and, and Governor Abbott has been averse to doing this. He's scared of a fight with the federal government, I think, for an, an invalid legal reason. Uh, but he has been uh, unwilling to do this. And, and But interestingly enough, he has accepted and, and articulated that he has this authority. So he, he, he puts out two executive orders 
And he says, I have this authority to, to, to declare an invasion. But then he doesn't go the next step to then remove these individuals into Mexico. He has come up with the most elaborate form of catch and release that you can possibly imagine. And only two, you two could imagine because it's similar to the games that were played during all of the COVID fascist mm-hmm. fights that are still ongoing, but have, we've experienced for the last two years. He, he says in his executive orders that we will re- remove these individuals to the border, but to the border means into the arms of Customs and Border uh-huh. Patrol at the border, at which point they will be released. So you have this complete game wow. within the authority to be able to make it look like he's doing something. We have called him on it. We've changed our specific. We're now not calling him to declare the invasion but to remove the individuals. Mm-hmm. And we are currently working on a legis- piece of legislation to move through the legislature to push uh, a border patrol core so that Texas would have the resources and the, the rules of engagement if the, if the governor would actually use the authority that he possesses under the Constitution. Russ, go back to something you said. What is it that he's afraid of legally Uh, in the fight that you indicated that you're not, you would not in his position be afraid of taking on the federal government in the legal realm. He believes that there's a federal law that would allow for state border patrol agents to be arrested in violation of federal law for an improper interdiction of illegal aliens. We have looked at that law. Uh, We don't think it applies in this situation. And we have said that this does, you would win every time in court if this was what they used but ultimately politically he's he is nervous very nervous about a confrontation with federal agents and state agents and not having thought through that new territory that we would be in but again we're not asking you to go and pick a fight with the customs and border patrol by the way they're not going to to stand in the way of enforcing the border if you want to use an example, FBI, we're not asking you to pick a con- to go where they are. We're, we're in fact saying go away from ports of entry and enforce in those areas and look for every opportunity to avoid any kind of conflict, even if it were to come from Washington, D.C. Uh, they would not have legal grounds. So it would be the federal government would be picking a fight with a governor that was doing what they had been unwilling to do. And they're not even willing to 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 tour the border, let alone enforce it. So um, that's really what he, he's worried about. Look, we got a, we have a generation and, you know, the three of us have talked about this. We have a generation of Republicans that only make their constitutional statesman like decisions based on on precedent, not as what the founders intended it. So the founders intended us to have real conflict among the branches horizontally and in and in, in vertically between states and in governors and we have no version of interposition anymore between states and, and governors if between governors and the federal government so there's no thought process really other than florida really in which they are actively strategizing and thinking on the basis of all right in this new world where you have a federal government's in complete violation of kind of how you would think about mm-hmm. in Federalist Number Thirty Three, where it's a you, you know you don't have as the federal government all the authorities in the world. You have the authorities that have been delegated to you in the Constitution, 
the laws that you have not been that power that you has not been delegated is not you don't have the, the the virtue of federal law being supreme. So we have got to get federal. We have to get governors thinking like this about increasing tension is what I would say. Tension with the federal mm-hmm. government and new muscle memory that allows them to think things through what a new art of the possible would be in this late hour that our our country finds itself in. I'm interested too. So, you know, in the case of being here in Tennessee, I mean, clearly Texas is in sort of a more unique position than Tennessee because it's act, it actually is a border state. It shares a national border. And so what I hear you saying is of course, governor Abbott, there's some concern that he feels like his state border patrol perhaps, uh, cannot remove those foreign nationals beyond the national border, which I get your argument and completely agree with your argument. But how how do you think, though, would you treat Tennessee any differently? I mean, certainly Texas uh, is is under greater assault, if you want to use that word, at, at the border since they actually do share the national border. But look, I mean, uh, all states are, are having this issue, uh, including us here in Tennessee. And then we see some of our rhino Republicans here are creating policies that almost sort of act as a magnet, you know, to increase illegal immigration here in our state. But in terms of removing those illegals from Tennessee, do you feel that a, a, a state that does not share a national border would have those same constitutional powers to remove individuals beyond the national border or is it different the way that we've looked at it is that it's primarily envisioned the you know the analysis is based on the facts on the ground on what people are seeing and as we've looked at it we've construed it generally from the standpoint of you know your border governors because we think that that's where the best argument is but i think all governors should be thinking through what they should be doing to change the paradigms in their state like for instance refugees you know the federal government just has this presumption that they're going to bring these you know refugees to any any state at their choosing but there are things that have been built up networks that have been built up that the state has a hand in being able to reverse that that flow for instance you know delicensing all these refugee organizations mm-hmm. that without that license they can't be the uh the lily pad for the federal government to bring the refugees to Tennessee or, right. or Georgia or, or yeah. whatever. So I think that's the, I think we need governors who are thinking like that instead of thinking about it as like, Oh my gosh, we're helping the needy. Why would we ever turn away anyone? And the same, th- the same paradigm that does not allow us to get the border right or the refugee problem in nationally is evident at the at the state level with the governors making these it's it's like they don't provide any strategic thought to how we might do something different and i think there are other options out and and you know we've also seen abbott and desantis both bus illegal immigrants to other states as well um you know in the case of abbott i think that was just literally him trying to find a cute way in an election year to do something other than what we had been telling him for a year with with DeSantis, uh, because of it's not quite the same factual situation on the ground. You know, we were supportive because he was trying to do something that allowed, you know, the narrative to be um, 
put on the front and center for people nationally about the problems of legal immigration in the country. And don't you think it's, I guess I'm asking a rhetorical question to the three of us, but it's all about word games, isn't it? If you call a person a refugee, then suddenly a governor who would otherwise throw him out because he doesn't share our values, he's not here to uphold American principles, but because we've designated him in advance a refugee, ooh, I can't, not only can I not um, return him to his home country, but I must provide for him. Right. Yeah. Or you don't, you don't love your neighbor, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, that's the new paradigm that yep. that you have once you use the word refugee. And then we have this massive bureaucracy at HHS and, and State Department providing health care and, and resources to be able to, to ensure that these individuals function. Mm-hmm. And the, the, are some of them, you know, bad people? No, of course not. I don't, you know, but there are also folks that do not share our cultural values coming from Afghanistan, for instance, in the aftermath of, of, you know, the very, very quick and, and uh, incompetent withdrawal that President Biden had, all these individuals, and we had to have a massive debate about whether all of these people were actually in the foxhole with us and not reflecting on the fact that, you know, we're talking about 80, 90 percent uh, hardcore Islamists who, mm-hmm. who believe in Sharia law in which there would not be a compatibility with the way that, you know, the American right. way of life. And so, uh, these are really serious questions. And if you're not willing to to get in the weeds and say, is this good for our country? You're not doing your, your constituents a service in being in these positions of leadership. Yep. Well, one is always I want to always I want to remind our folks here in Tennessee what we've done and what's happened here on the ground. Uh, was over a year, maybe a year and a half ago, whenever Biden was uh, there was buses and there were planes flying all over the place with these illegals. And, and uh, we found out. There were planes literally one week, almost every night, coming through Chattanooga, and we discovered that these illegals were being housed in a facility that previously uh, Governor Lee had licensed as a refugee resettlement place. But but these weren't refugees. These were literally illegals being flown from the border. Uh, additionally, just to remind everyone, Russ, I'm sure you're aware, when President Trump was still in office— there was an executive order that he signed that allowed the Republican state governors to opt out of the refugee resettlement program. That was really the point of his executive order. It gave them a way out. Well, wouldn't you know, our governor opted in. <laughs> so uh, that so we, we face, you know, that's the issue we face. It, and it's literally exactly what you said. It's the governor's bleeding Christian heart, you know, for the refugees. And uh, he's, this guy always opts into those things. But the thing we got to make clear is it would be the right heart position if these were truly refugees who were seeking, seeking asylum from communist persecution or Islamist persecution, but they're not, they're not refugees. And because someone calls them refugees, he doesn't have the the moral, you can't make the moral distinction right. to say, well, these are not really refugees, therefore I'm going to treat them differently. Let me shift the conversation because we could go an hour just on that. Russ, we were really excited. In fact, we spent a couple of weeks counting how many votes for speaker it would take for Kevin McCarthy to get elected. <clears throat> and I kept telling Gary um, how excited I was about what was going on behind the scenes. And um, can you give us a little inside baseball of what was going on and and how you achieved getting Kevin McCarthy to capitulate on a number of rules that benefit conservatives 
and then tell us how that's working out over the first six weeks of session. Sure. You know, we were saying we wanted either a paradigm shifting speaker or a paradigm shifting result. And we got the latter. And I think we actually got more changes in how the house operates than we would have gotten even under a conservative that any one of us would have wanted to vote for if we were members. And namely, it's in the procedures of the house. And does leadership control them? Or does the House conservatives who really, when conservative-based voters vote for their members, they think they're getting House conservatives, House Freedom Caucus members. Those are the ones who go and like actually want to do what they said that they would do. Andy Ogles was one of them in Tennessee. So like we've had this situation where you have no respect for the 20, the 40 most conservative members and as a result, there has been a, a kind of a cold civil war there. And what I have argued for, what others have argued for, is that there needs to be a coalition style government where if you don't have all the votes that you need and you have to come get House conservatives votes to be able to be speaker, then there needs to be a power share agreement, not unlike what you would see in Israel, mm-hmm. not unlike what you would see with the Christian Democrats in Germany's uh, parliament. And so. That's really what was negotiated. Yeah, they're all still Republicans, but there is now a real ceding of power to key committees that I believe are the things that control the D.C. cartel, namely the House Rules Committee, the House Appropriations Committee. Both have enough House conservatives, not just with the power to stop it, but there has an expectation that they would use this power. So when you think about the House Rules Committee, they make every decision, every bill that comes to the floor, it's a major bill or amendment, they make those determinations. And so now you have three conservatives on there who have a veto anything coming to the floor. You've changed the way the place works. And I I have not seen it this decentralized since 1961 when Speaker Sam Rayburn took this power into the speakership, into elected leadership, and basically made the Rules Committee his drones. So massive change. You asked the question, I'll give you the inside baseball in a second, but you asked the change, what have I'm seeing since then? Mm-hmm. And it's like being in the New Testament out of at, coming out of the Old Testament. So you have to like step into it. You have to step into this new clothing and wear it right. Mm -hmm. You have to know, hey, this is a whole new day. All of our strategic decisions in the Old Testament are now invalid. There may be reasons for them, but now we are making new calls based on having real power, and it's forcing everyone to rethink their rules of engagement. And so it's, it's, uh, it's taken a lot of work. It's taken a lot of discussion. It's taken a lot of encouragement by folks like me to remember, guys, don't go back there. You have real power. You're governing. They have to come to you. They have to make sure you're okay. And to think of it that way, don't kind of revert back to, well, they're the chairman. I got to vote for the bill. I'm on the committee. No, 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 no. That's Old Testament thinking. New Testament is here are my demands. Here are my interests on behalf of my the, my people, the American people. This is how we actually change the way things operate. The thing that's interesting, that's fun about it though, Kevin and Gary, is that the last 15, 20 years, we'd spent all this time building the fight in the grassroots to force the people, the cartel, 
who was opposed to us to fight, but then they would never actually want to fight mm -hmm. and they would execute the fight in a way that they would, you would lose. So it was so hard to ever get any accomplishments. Think about Ted Cruz. We, we spent months getting the defund Obamacare fight up and running mm -hmm. defund Planned Parenthood. And then it, you put it in the hands of leadership like John Boehner and they just put it into a cul-de-sac. What's different about this is that the people who have an interest in it are now at the table with a share of the governing to be able to ensure that the fight is executed right. Mm -hmm. So you have a Chip Roy who's at has a seat at the table to say, no, if we do this, this will mean we will fail. We're not doing this. And so it's it's really provided a new, totally new paradigm in the House. And to be honest with you, the Senate doesn't understand it. The K Street hasn't figured it out. They are all in kind of that Old Testament thinking, and they will be proven right if our guys don't step into that new that new paradigm. But in terms of the, the inside baseball, I mean, we were saying on the outside, this is going to be a leverage point. He doesn't have the votes, which was obvious after mm -hmm. the election. And if you think that a member can go home and explain that they themselves could have with with you know three or four other people could have them been the ones to block Kevin McCarthy from being speaker with getting nothing in hand for it. That was not something that any of them were going to be able to explain, let alone the handful that was needed to block it. So this was going to be a fight. What was different about it is the members were very organized. They choreographed it so well. They had the five go out and really forced the issue. And then they had really another 15 articulating the demands, articulating the visions, putting a maximalist set of uh, expectations that was ultimately agreed to. And then it hit the fan and the votes start happening. If you remember, there was a lot of talking tough at the time. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're just going to make them vote. We're yeah. going to make them vote until uh, the end of the night, we're going to bring the cots in. We're going to, you know, they're going to sleep on the house floor. And none of that happened. You know, they basically had two or three votes in recess because they knew they had a real difficult situation on the hand. And it got to the point where Kevin McCarthy may have been the only person willing to agree to this set of demands, because even a conservative, when a conservative takes office, it's hard to cede power. Mm -hmm. And that's effectively what he did. He had to cede power. Now I th think he's got a chance to be a historic speaker as the person to decentralize the House. Which is so far so good. Do I think he's the same Kevin McCarthy? Yes. But I also think he his interests now are how do I become a historic speaker and be able to have a unified House? His interests are now moving towards real conservatism about what we're trying to accomplish because Otherwise, he'll just not be held to the govern with Democrats and he'll prove to be a failure just like his, his predecessor. So I'm optimistic right now. I'm rooting for him to be historic, uh, but we're going to have to show him every opportunity, what it looks like and think ahead of the cartel and stay constantly ahead. And for Kevin and our purposes at Center for Renewing America, you know, there's an, just an incredible demand for the work that we've been doing to help conceive of the art of the possible, mm -hmm. what they should be fighting for. And they know that we got their back and they're, we're in the foxhole with them and they've been willing to listen and, and absorb. They don't always agree with us, but they're, you know, they, they're looking to, to think through, okay, we've got this, I, I call us our, the shadow OMB budget, the shadow OMB, you know, we're the, 
the toolkit that we were in the administration for President Trump, we're trying to provide that same role for the 20 and the those who are adjacent to the 20 that wanted to be with them and weren't quite in the fight mm -hmm. uh, on the speakership fight. <clears throat> I think one of the most fascinating parts of what you said, Russ, was about habits. Think of that, Gary. He was talking about these conservative House members had actually won all of these opportunities <clears throat> But they're so accustomed to the old way of to, doing business. To losing. Yeah. That after <laughs> they had gained their freedom, essentially, they wanted to go back to slavery. Yeah. It's just so that that's a key point, isn't it? Because you have to babysit them in this process and constantly encourage them so they don't go back like uh, what's the Bible say, like a dog to its own vomit. Right. Yep. That's fascinating to me. Well, and what you said is really encouraging, too, because I was going to ask you that, like like your thoughts on do, do you think you may actually be getting. The, the Kevin McCarthy that you wanted, you know, post uh, what happened. And it, it sounds like you're saying that you're hopeful. So that's, and I, I got to say, like, outside looking in, so, of course, a lot of time hasn't passed. But it does, it does feel, you know, so far like a, a more conservative house, you know, more more than I expected, you know, whenever McCarthy was first put up. So, man, I, thank you for your work because, truly, it was it was exciting to watch and I think so far the the general feeling I get is I'm I'm hopeful as well I'm I'm optimistic and so I'm glad you're seeing the same thing that's that's encouraging to me and by the way I just want you to know Kevin does not but I live in the fifth so Andy Ogles is my <clears throat> congressman uh, as well as a very very close friend of mine and I know that um, his folks here were were very proud of the stand that he took and uh, behind him and the Freedom Caucus 100 percent so. Thanks for your leadership in that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I we, should say, Kevin's going to get me in trouble. I would never say that I, I have to babysit these guys at all. I think it's more about helping think through when it's like climbing a mountain and you've you've above the tree line for the first time mm -hmm. and you're trying to, 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 to map out where to go next. And then you look behind you and you're like, oh, my gosh, look <laughs> what we just accomplished. And sometimes when you're just keeping your foot, you just, these guys are so busy one foot, they're dealing with the blows or their colleagues and they don't, sometimes they, they, they need help to see what they just accomplished and to then picture what could be on the basis right. of that. And so that was really the role that we, we were in. And now it's trying to get their back. I mean, they're coming after Andy Ogles. Uh, they're trying to come after Anna Paulina Luna and they're saying, you know, these people are not who they said they were. And really, the swamp is unbelievably shocked that these freshmen came to Congress and were like, I want to be with those guys fighting and had the right pattern recognition to be able to do that. And we got to get their back. But there is some aspect of when a member goes through something like this and they were successful, it's hard to Im imagine them having more statesman-like confidence to then go on and fight. These 20, they've been through it. They're mm -hmm. ready to rock and roll. You know, they're ready for the debt limit fight. And I think that's our job is to now add to their numbers. There was, you know, who are the members that we can all think of? Like, you know, why weren't you in that fight with them? Yep. Those are members are asking themselves that same question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saying, I wish I had been because I, I, I didn't missed think it. they'd win. I missed and the now we want to make sure that they have that opportunity to build that movement and really be able to be in the foxhole because they were they took a, a, a very courageous position in the yeah. next fight. I think that's what we're building to. So 
Russ, one more area I wanted to cover in our remaining time was, can you tell our audience about the church committee? Because I I believe that was doing like the church committee, right? I believe that was your brainchild. I remember when you first mentioned it to me last spring, actually. And um, tell me how that's going. Who's on that committee and um, what are we tackling first? Uh, And one of the big things that was secured by the 20 was this church style committee, which is not a church committee in the sense of like your local church. I'm using that uh, historically based on the work of Senator Frank Church in the 1970s in the aftermath of a number of abuses uh, of the intelligence agencies coming to uh, plain view of the American people. And for the first time, it was an institution that brought the FBI and the CIA to its knees that led to real reforms. Not those were those reforms did not prove to be enduring, but it was an opportunity to locate in the minds of Congress the right way that they should be thinking about oversight. That the oversight couldn't just be, hey, your normal random committee in which the FBI knows the games that they play. They tell the Judiciary Committee, well, this is an intel issue. And so we're not going to answer your questions. And then they tell the Intel Committee, this is a law enforcement issue. I'm not going to answer your questions. And we'd seen this because, you know, we have Cash Patel and other mm-hmm. veterans of the Nunez fight at the Center for Renewing America. And so we were pushing for a select committee. We did not get that, but we got them to ensure that the Judiciary Subcommittee had all of the jurisdiction that they need to go wherever they needed to go. So they can't play those games. But we do have a vision issue now in that we need the leadership of the subcommittee. It's Jim Jordan, but he's got a lot of things on his plate. I am worried about that. We need Jim Jordan to be leaning forward and to really delegate enough to the the guys like Dan Bishop and Matt Gates who have a hunger for this and not to just treat this as, all right, you know, the stuff we know about, right? We know the FBI was sent after parents uh, and pro-life activists. But we need to know the databases that they have on us, the cells that are still Mm. in operation, the way they use overclassification. We got to have it all scoped out and mapped out. And I think I'm worried that they're not hiring fast enough. They have the same resources the January 6th committee has. So this is they they can hire 150 staffers Mm -hmm of huge mega talent investigators. They're not quite there yet, but I have high hopes for them. And I couldn't have more high hopes for the members like Dan Bishop and Matt Gates, who are going to be really tackling this. So we're, we're just getting started, but there's a lot of work that needs to happen in, in a short amount of time. How about threats from China? <clears throat> what do you see as the most credible and helpful action Uh, currently underway in Congress. Is there, you know, we've got threats from China from so many different directions. We've got the culturally threats, we've got the elite capture that we've talked about on this program a lot. We have the actual physical uh, military threats. What is Congress doing now and where do you see the most hope in actually making progress to push back against China? Well, there's a select committee that is up and running by Mike Gallagher, And he's very competent, not quite a conservative, but very competent. And I think that'll be a a very useful thing that's designed to get a real sense of the agenda that needs to go after. My biggest concern with with regard to China is that we have a neoconservative 
paradigm that still reigns in Washington, D.C. and our foreign policy uh, apparatus. So we do not have the ability to focus the foreign policy of this country as the number one threat with it, which is China, because we are so focused on the situation in Ukraine. And I just do not believe that that's our fight. I don't believe that Russia has proven in any way that they can't even win a war in Ukraine let alone threaten the rest of Europe, let alone Western Europe. And so I think there needs to be a lot of work to be reorienting the United States foreign policy away from a threat that no longer exists. And if it does exist, it's incumbent on Europe to be able to step up and fund their own defenses. So you asked about China, I went to Europe, but I really believe it's be, it's it's inhibiting our ability mm-hmm. to focus on China, even though there are some good mm. uh, institutions set up as it pertains to what needs to be done and some competent people working on it. Well, aren't we just playing into China's hand when we go to fight and put resources and money, hopefully not manpower, but I fear that's coming, 100%. to fight Russia, who is aligned who has been aligned, but is even more closely aligned now with China? Yes. And and like we're it's threatening tactical nuclear war. I mean, we are putting ourselves in the line and letting ourselves be spun up by a Ukrainian country that should be pushed to go to the negotiating table. And we are putting ourselves at chance at at, at, in, in an opportunity to escalate and ultimately be threatened with nuclear war. And people will say, well, it's tactical nukes. Do, do people understand that tactical nukes are nukes? They're nukes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it, and there's like this flippancy in the defense community about, oh, let's just, you know, it's it's not that big a deal. Well, I'm pretty sure it'd be a big deal, you know, if you were in Ukraine and you're now have that being lobbed into your, your, your country. And so I, I think that it's incumbent upon us to stop the funding of this this nation so that they have to then operate like an adult and get to the negotiating table and make some real decisions that benefit their people and, and, and secure a peace that works for both countries. Well, and the more effort, time, manpower, uh, equipment that we send and devote to Ukraine, we don't have the ability to defend Taiwan. We don't have the ability to protect the South China Sea. I mean, it's it's all interconnected. And that's why I think that China loves the fact and they'll do everything they can behind the scenes to push the United States further into this conflict in Ukraine. Right. Yeah. No. And, and, and you know, it has exposed our manufacturing inadequacies, you know, the Stinger missiles. The, there's a lot of capabilities that we're giving Ukraine that are therefore not going to be available as a result. And, you know, the debate that I want to have, I want to have a big debate about what we need for the United States Navy to be able to confront China. And we can't have that when, you know, the number one preoccupation of the national security community is another hundred billion dollars for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, guys. Meanwhile, we're protecting the border of Ukraine vigorously while leaving our own border open. It's how we roll. It's it's how we roll. Including, including (laughs) paying their pensions. Uh. I mean, it's just incredible. Do you, do you think I, I saw something come across my feed the other day about Taiwan? I mean, it, it almost looks like China is beginning to position towards Taiwan. Beginning, <clears throat> yeah, they've been working on this. Well, for, I mean, working for a while, but I mean, now now that it it just seems like it's all coming to a head. Yeah, I mean, the predictions now are 
2025, right? Because of election distraction here in 24, because of elections in Taiwan, I think also in 24. Yeah, there's a lot of reason. And and I worry, and maybe this can throw back to Russ, we've had this battle both before the Trump administration, during the Trump administration, and then after. I'm worried about the draft. I'm worried about the draft, and I'm worried about draft our daughters because we're going to be confronted with these conflicts and throw these men into war. And we already have our military leaders now admitting, yes, there's going to be mass, mass casualties. Get your life in order. Yeah. I, does anyone really want to fight a war with the current military that leadership that we have? No. I mean, no. They're so politicized. They are so woke. I, I just, you know, when you see things about what's tweeted out from not just main Pentagon, but just the different units, it's just horrifying about how woke our military is. And I am significantly worried about our ability to perform and have effectiveness on the battlefield when we have this track record of it being politicized over the last, you know, really several years. So it's a tough moment because we have to be aggressively leaning forward to deal with China because if we don't, they will learn all the wrong uh, rationales and they'll keep moving forward. But we also got to realize that, you know, as a, as a country, this isn't the best time for us to be fighting a war, given the state of our military leadership, the divide that we face as Americans on the basis of, you know, one side of the country is, is weaponized against the other. It is a very, very dangerous moment for the country. And I think that our foreign policy leaders have not fully grasped the complexity of the moment that they're asking for, you know, None of us would want to be able to, to, we want to make sure that when we go, if we have to go to war, God forbid, the decisions that are made are not based on those from the left that are trying to make it. There's a reason that they want to draft our daughters and it has nothing to do with our ability to win a war. Right. And that's what worries me about where we are as a country vis-a-vis our military right now. Yeah. Gary, I've got one more question for Russ, but I didn't want to uh, preclude you from asking. No, go for it. Russ, this is um, something that happened that's been bubbling under for a a year, a couple of years, but it's really come to the forefront in the last week or two. And that is this ridiculous pending non-treaty executive agreement that the Biden administration is seeking to enter into with the World Health Organization, right, to surrender Americans' rights, liberties, constitutional Mm -hmm. authority to a world government that we did not elect. And all I see from the Senate, although the the Republicans in the Senate are doing their job and saying, look, this is not a treaty, it's not enforceable, but what can be done more than that kind of lip service to stop this nonsense? Well, I want people to be very clear when they say that it's not enforceable, what during COVID was enforceable? Exactly. That's they a great would have point. Tony Fauci go to a press conference and say, this is what we should do, or Deb Burks. And next thing you know, your local health agency or your fascist big corporation in Tennessee or Florida was making these determinations on the basis of those unenforceable guidance coming yes. from technocrats. Yes. So the fact that it's now one step removed more globally makes it even harder because if we don't have an opportunity 
to change Tony Fauci's mind? How are we going to have the opportunity to change the guy that's running the World Health Organization when he decides that this is a global pandemic? And as a result, that has a chain reaction informally, unenforceable, but based on the notion of defending public health. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time thinking about like when when people sell out to stop everything on the basis of one thing, whether that's national security or public health, the, the ends really does justify the means. And they cut and, and yep. we see what has happened. They they lie. They manipulate the bureaucracy. And we're setting ourselves up if we don't stop this or defund World Health Organization or what I think is necessary. And we have model legislation to do this. If this goes into effect, states and localities have to bind their governors from being able to have their public health agencies act on the basis of their recommendations. And it has to be the state legislatures and localities it says, look, we are not going into lockdown, period, or any of these things are happening unless there's an affirmative vote, a new new statute. And that should be a supermajority threshold or ho- however you write the law, because otherwise we're going to have a replay of COVID. And, and it won't even because the United States woke up and decided to sound the alarm. It will be it'll have happened in Geneva. No, that's great. I was actually going to ask you, what what would you recommend as to how to thwart that? compliance because that I've said this so many times people you know during the the quote unquote the pandemic we'll call it um, you know people wanted to cry well this is unconstitutional well the fact is it doesn't matter that it's unconstitutional because you keep complying with the nonsense right as long as we and so it's it's the same point here in terms of the compliance of government agencies against uh, the unlawful or, or non-existent authority, I really should say, of someone like the who. So that's that's great advice. I, I think, man, I, I want to. Dang it! There's the bill filing deadlines <clears throat> passed. Like we need to run that right now. A bill, a bill that mm-hmm. that somehow binds the governor, binds boards of health, binds our you know Tennessee Department of Health from taking any action to comply with an agency like the who, like the CDC in an emergency without, like you say, like a supermajority action from the legislature. That's a great, that's a great yeah, idea. So as soon as maybe a, a, another, um, a return performance, Russ, a uh, couple months down the road, I'd love to talk about that more <clears throat> and we can talk about it for next legislative session. Just putting this out there, not as if you don't have enough to do, but I, <laughs> but I know that that's a great concern for many that it would be, I, I think it would be really helpful to groups like mine in in every state to have some kind of model legislation to look at, you know, what does that bill look like that we can run that would bind these organizations and make sure that if anything came down from the WHO, that it would immediately trigger the necessity for a response from our legislature and even make sure that it, that, uh, you know, the governor can't just come in. Like right now, we, we've still not fixed that law mm-hmm. in Tennessee. Right, It's unconstitutional according to our state constitution, but the law still allows the governor singularly to call for an emergency. There's no limits on that emergency. He can unilaterally renew that emergency on an unlimited basis uh, in the state of Tennessee. That's what the law allows him to do. And none of our legislature is has the courage to confront that, they're all like, "Oh, well, the governor has this authority." Yeah, well, I I don't think it's that they didn't have the courage. I think they just shirked their responsibility. I I, I think they just watched this governor 
you know, rule by executive fiat for 20 months, and they didn't have to take the heat for it. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to make any of the decisions. They didn't have to do anything that was unpopular. They let it all rest on Mm -hmm. the governor's shoulders. Well, Russ, we could go on for hours. Um, I'm really respectful of your time and appreciate you coming on uh, for an extended version of this podcast. Uh, We'll have you back maybe in another six months or so, as your schedule allows, but we really do appreciate it. I know our audience will appreciate it. And uh, best wishes. Thanks for all the fight uh, on behalf of us. Yeah. And and I guess I'll see you uh, in a couple months. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me and appreciate what you guys do. You guys are patriots at the local level. And, um, you know, I think that uh, we get inspiration from seeing what you guys are accomplishing and one of build on that and arm you in every way but thank you for the opportunity and look forward to doing it again soon thanks for us if you'd like to learn more about tennessee stands visit tennesseestands.org to donate volunteer or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of tennessee You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. Mm